1: Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing Buddhist chanting. And after we discuss chanting for a bit, I'm going to provide you some instruction on helping you to develop your Buddhist chanting practice. Chanting has been done all throughout history of Buddhist cultures and all throughout the world. The Theravada tradition, which is here in Thailand, Sri Lanka, Laos, Miramar and Cambodia, as well as Southern Vietnam, they practice chanting in the Pali language. Pali is the traditional language that the Buddhist teachings have been shared with through the Pali Canon or the Pali text. The Theravada teachings also show up all throughout the world in various venues and communities who are actually practicing these teachings. Theravada means teachings of the elders. Because Theravada tradition is considered to be the form of the teachings that are closest to the lifetime of the actual Buddha and practicing what he actually taught. Later, Mahayana tradition and Vajrayana tradition and other traditions start to spawn and start to be created much later after Gautama Buddha's death. These other traditions also practice some form of chanting or mantras, oftentimes, they're in localized languages. So if you're in China, you may be chanting in Chinese, or if you're in Vietnam, practicing Mahayana tradition or some of the other traditions, you may be practicing chanting in Vietnamese. So every region of the world will practice various types of chanting. But one of the beauties about the Theravada tradition and the Pali chanting is that if you learn Pali chanting, not only does it benefit your practice and helping you to ease the mind into meditation, but also when you join together with other members of the Theravada community in different events and venues, you can actually chant together. So if you learn this chanting today, you'll be able to chant with other Buddhist practitioners, whether they're from Thailand, from Sri Lanka, from Miramar, from Cambodia, from Laos, from southern Vietnam, or anywhere in the world that is chanting Theravada tradition. The way that I use chanting is I use it as a way to start developing awareness of the mind and awareness of the breath prior to meditation. Some people discuss practicing chanting or mantras as a way of perhaps invoking some spiritual powers or having some way of special benefits through actually doing the chanting. However, the chanting has been used throughout times in order to memorize the teachings. During Gautama Buddha's lifetime, when he taught for 45 years, many people were becoming enlightened. And as the mind becomes more and more enlightened, you actually develop increased abilities to memorize. And they can memorize a lot of the Buddhist teachings. And one of the ways that they did that is through chanting. So not only does chanting make you aware of the breath and aware of the mind, prior to meditation, but it also helps to develop memorization skills to memorize the chanting and memorize the teachings. Because what you're actually chanting are the actual teachings in the original language of Pali. Many venues still teach in the Pali language and they will then translate it over to a localized language. I don't actually teach with the Pali language because nowadays There's so much of the Buddhist teachings available in the English language that we don't actually need to learn the teachings in the Pali language. One of the goals of Gautama Buddha was to share his teachings worldwide. During his lifetime, that was actually impossible because there were so many different languages spoken in the world and travel was somewhat limited as part of the way things were during his lifetime 2,500 years ago. But today, it's a very unique time in history that more and more of the entire world is speaking the English language and understands the English language. And travel throughout the world has become easier and easier. Not only physical travel, but travel of information and teachings. So now we're at a unique time in history, unlike any other, where the teachings can be shared in English and they can reach all corners of the world. So by us learning and practicing the teachings in English, we have a much wider community of people in order to discuss the teachings with, share our experiences, and receive help and guidance along this path to enlightenment. But even with that said, it's still kind of nice to chant in this historical language of Pali and learn how to do so, so that when you join together with other practitioners, you have the ability to do that. So let's discuss some of the chants, the real common chants, and I'm going to help you learn how to chant this in the Pali language. And then, with some of the students that are in the virtual classroom, if they would like some personal guidance, they may actually be willing to do some chanting on their own, so that you can actually hear someone chanting, that is a student and I can provide them some instruction to improve their chanting practice because remember everyone's a student everyone's learning and in order to really develop chanting as a real tool it needs to be learned and practiced much like a hammer you're not going to pick up a hammer on the first day and go out and build a house so you need to work with that hammer over repeated sessions, repeated times, to get very proficient so that now you can accomplish more and more benefits with this tool of the hammer. So I see chanting as the same way. It needs to be practiced over repeated sessions so that more and more and more over time, you can actually get the benefit of becoming aware of the breath, aware of the mind. You get to hear this calming sound that leads the mind into meditation and eases it into meditation and eases it out of meditation. Where this comes from in terms of how I use chanting is from what the Buddha described as setting up mindfulness in front of you. When he taught meditation, he taught that we should set up mindfulness in front of us. Mindfulness is awareness of mind when we're actually meditating it's an independent active training session where we're either training the mind to eliminate certain qualities or cultivate certain qualities in the mind so there needs to be awareness of the mind during meditation so setting up mindfulness in front of you prior to meditation as Gautama buddha described you may choose to do this in different ways some people may choose to do a little yoga or stretching. Some people may choose to do prayer if they're interested in prayer. Some people may just do something simple and go to the bathroom and kind of empty the body out and just kind of you know, walk really calmly to the place where they're gonna meditate. Whatever you choose to do, you should have some way prior to meditation that you're easing the mind into meditation and setting up mindfulness in front of you or awareness of mind. For me, one of the things that I do is I do chanting. So I would like to share that with you today and help you learn how to do this practice so that then it can become beneficial for you. If you are studying with this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, then you can look in Chapter 11 because in there you'll find this same text that I'm going to use today to teach you. You'll find it in Chapter 11. The very first chant that is typically used in any particular event as you're in Buddhist communities is what's called the Triple Gem or the Triple Jewel. This particular chant has three verses, and each of these verses pay respect and gratitude to the Triple Gem. The Triple Gem or the Triple Jewel in these teachings are the Buddha, the teachings, and his community of practitioners which essentially includes everybody the entire community but can also be broken down into individual segments of the community the ordained bhikkhus the ordained bhikkhunis anybody who's attained one of the four stages of enlightenment and then more widely the entire community so these three the triple gem or the triple jewel in order for one to become enlightened or awakened In the Buddhist teachings they would need to have confidence in the Buddha that he was actually enlightened because why would anybody ever start to learn on this path to enlightenment if they didn't have confidence that the Buddha was actually enlightened so you need to have confidence in the Buddha that he was enlightened and then you need to have access to his teachings which is the second part of the triple gem or the triple jewel you need to have access to those teachings and then the third one, you need to be part of a community or the Sangha. You need to have access to teachers and guides, the ordained bhikkhus, the ordained bhikkhunis the teachers who have attained one of the four stages of enlightenment, and the wider community to practice the teachings and model the teachings, learn and discuss the teachings with. Without these three things, one would find it essentially impossible to awaken the mind in the Gautama Buddha's teachings. Because if we don't have confidence that the Buddha was actually enlightened, we wouldn't ever even step forward on this path whatsoever. But even if we had faith and confidence that the Buddha was enlightened, if we didn't have access to his teachings, we also wouldn't be able to awaken the mind. And then even if you had confidence in the Buddha and you had access to his teachings all by yourself, stuffed in a room somewhere, you're not going to be able to attain enlightenment. You need access to the community of practitioners, which are the ordained practitioners of bhikkhus and bhikanis, as well as teachers who have attained one of the four stages of enlightenment, as well as the wider community, so that you can, again, discuss and have discussion about the teachings and learn how to practice these teachings within a community. So we almost always start out Buddhist events with this triple gem or the triple jewel. And the way that it starts is it starts with the very first line. Arathang
2: <laughs> sammasam
1: So this is the chant showing gratitude and respect to the Buddha, the perfectly enlightened one. The reason why we call him the perfectly enlightened one is because he attained enlightenment by himself with his own pursuit, without any teachers or guides influencing his knowledge or wisdom or how to actually attain enlightenment. So he needed to discover it on his own. This is one of the things that makes a Buddha a Buddha is that they don't have teachers or guides that are guiding them in their practice. They discover the path on their own through their own pursuit. And because of that, a actual Buddha is going to have deep, deep, deep wisdom, and they're going to know the path very clearly, very directly without influences from outside people or outside teachers, because you can actually become awakened in the buddhist teachings through various teachers and usually it it may take three four five ten different teachers that you actually learn with before you actually become awakened but there's kind of this residual amount you know 10 20 30 percent of things that didn't actually lead to your awakening they've just been kind of handed down from person to person and kind of learned and practiced out of respect for the elders so to speak However, what a Buddha is going to do is they are going to observe the path through kind of the world and observing the world as their own teacher. So they will discover and realize certain things and they will practice that and see if it leads to awakening of their mind. And if it does, they know that that's part of the path because their mind becomes further awake. And if it doesn't lead to awakening, They move it to the side and they discard it so someone who's awakened on their own as a self-awakened buddha we consider them to be the perfectly enlightened one because they don't retain any extra teachings that don't lead to awakening they know very clearly what is the path all other beings are going to need teachers and guides in order to awaken the mind a buddha is a buddha And the last known Buddha that currently existed, that the entire world understands and knows about, is Gautama Buddha. He existed 2,500 years ago, and he is the Buddha. Now, I say the entire world. Now, not everyone in the world knows about him. But if you know anything about awakening and enlightenment and you're familiar with the Buddha, we're referring to Gautama Buddha, the perfectly enlightened one because he doesn't retain or have any residual or uh, not needed teachings. He understood the path very clearly. He self-awakened. And then he shared those teachings with countless other people during his lifetime that led to their awakening. And then those people helped others to awaken since his death over the last 2,500 years. This is what a Buddha does. They awaken on their own, they teach others and guide others to awaken, and then when they die, lots of other people can continue to become awakened because they receive the teachings very clearly and very concisely from a perfectly awakened one, okay? So that's the first phrase, and let's just do this one together so that you can learn it and kind of practice it. I'll go a little bit slow for you. So, wherever you are, just bring your hands together in front of your sternum, palm to palm, and let's practice this first phrase together. And I'll go a little bit slow.
2: now a lot of times in
1: a big event people are sitting on the floor and they will bow to the floor when they actually finish with this phrase or for me when i'm sitting like this i'll just raise my hands up to my forehead out of respect for the buddha
2: the second phrase And then, once again, hands go up to the
1: forehead. This phrase is showing respect for the teachings. That's the Dhamma. The Dhamma is the teachings that were explained by the Buddha, by the perfectly awakened one. So that's why the translation here says the Dhamma is well expounded by the perfectly enlightened one. I pay respect to the Dhamma, to his teachings, because those are needed in order to understand true reality and start to awaken the mind. So we pay respect to the teachings. Gratitude. Then the last phrase Supatipanno
2: Bhagavato Savakasanko Sanghamammi, and then once
1: again, hands go up to the forehead, or if you're sitting on the floor, maybe you decide to bow. This phrase is paying respect to the Sangha of the perfectly enlightened one essentially the disciples, the followers, the students, those who are learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha. Oftentimes people think the sangha is just the male ordained practitioners. That is one segment of the sangha. But we also have bhikkhunis as well, which are ordained females who are part of this sangha as well. And then we have people who have attained one of the four stages of enlightenment. Either as a stream enterer, a once returner, a non returner, or an arahant. These are the four stages of enlightenment or awakening. And then we have the wider community as a whole, everybody who's learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha. So when you use the word sangha, it's important to understand what group of the community are you referring to. Are you referring to the entire community? Are you referring to those that have attained one of the four stages of enlightenment, which are considered to be the Aryan Sangha? Are you referring to the Bhikkhuni Sangha, which are the ordained females, or the Bhikkhu Sangha? Now, if you're wanting to be all-inclusive here, I would consider this to be the entire community. Why should we just pay respect and gratitude to one particular segment of the community? We should have respect and gratitude for all beings. So the entire Sangha of the perfectly enlightened one, the Buddha. So let's do this chant one time all the way through. And then we'll check in with some of the people in the virtual classroom and see if they would like to get some personal guidance on this. So bring your hands together, palms together in front of your sternum. And now let's chant this together. Take a nice deep breath.
2: Inhale. ara han another breath potang mahakavanang Sawaka to haka watam namasami so patipano haka Sangha Namami
1: Okay, so this is the first chant that I would like to share and help you with. It's very common to learn this one step by step and very slowly and get some instruction along the way. So let's see, is there anyone in our virtual classroom that would like to receive some guidance and coaching, try to do some chanting and I'll help you out to develop your practice further?
3: I'm happy to put my hand up for that, David.
1: Okay, Max is not going to be shy. He's eliminating shyness here, which is part of the Enlightened (laughs) Path, eliminating shyness. So, all right, let's see what you got, Max. Remember this, and and remember, let let me just share this. You're not in competition with anybody. We're not comparing what Max does to somebody else. This is all about your own individual practice and receiving guidance along the path. So this is just max learning and practicing and receiving coaching and eliminating shyness. Go for it.
3: Thank
4: you. Okay. Arahan sammasambuddho vakavā O Tang pagavatang apiwatemi sawakato pagwata damo namasami. All
1: right, good job. Clap it up for Max. All right. That was very good, Max. You've been practicing. You've been yeah, practicing. But
3: it's taken me a year, so you know. <laughs>
5: okay,
1: let me just give you uh, one one or two pointers that I noticed. This is kind of like American Idol, or like, uh, right? Like, <laughs> we can have some fun with this, right? Like, Buddhism it should be fun. It should be enjoyable, right? We don't have to always be serious and meditation and, uh, right? Absolutely. We can have fun. So this is kind of like American Idol. So Max, you actually did really, really good there. The only thing that I would suggest for you is the first phrase that you did with the Buddha is focus on the P's. Because in some places like Sri Lanka and other places, from what I hear, they do use more of a B sound. But the way that they practice this in Thailand, so even though we all practice with the Pali language, there's still kind of some regional dialects. And in Thailand, it's more of a P so it's
2: arahang samasa samputo pakawat, tang pakawatang apiwatemi.
1: Right. So it's a little bit more of a P sound. You had a little bit of a B in there, which people would understand just fine, like I understood exactly what you're doing, but if you want to make it a little bit more authentic to the Thai tradition, you would add just a little bit more P sound in there.
3: Thank you. Yeah, that makes sense. I have seen it uh, written with with a B, and I've heard it that way as well, so um, I had wondered why there was a difference there. So
1: if I can clear up. Yeah, remember that this Pali language, it wasn't a written language at the time that it was actually spoken originally. So it wasn't until later that they wrote it down and it's got its own script. What we're doing with these English characters is we're taking the sounds of Pali that we hear and we're putting it into English characters. And this is the way that I wrote it out. And what you'll see with ties is they will use their script and their characters to write out what they hear with the sounds of poly. So you'll see with English, we only have, what, 26 characters to represent these sounds, where the ties, they have 44 consonants, 20 some odd vowels. They've got five tonal markers, you know, so they can really fine tune this pretty well. And this is why you'll see with English, you'll see different translations by different people. But when I learned it by ear from the Thai people, I learned it by ear. When I wrote it down, I write it down this way and it works for me. So let me hear you say this first phrase again, Max. Try to redo it now with understanding that it's more of a P sound. Yeah, that's good. That's a little bit better. All Still, right. the pu tang, tang, Yes, Poo Yep. Poo Yep. The more you hear it, putang. the more. The more you're around people, the more you hear it. The more you get it in the ear it'll come out through the mouth the more you hear it. So yeah, that was very good, Max. Thanks for volunteering to be the first one. Do we have any others that have been practicing that would like to try? Who else so, do we got?
3: No one in zoom at the moment.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think some people haven't been practicing or it's not something they've been choosing to do, or maybe they're just a little shy, not comfortable to, I know, to if, it. I
3: know that, um, Bill has gone to Facebook today. So, uh, I hope
1: you're
2: joining us at home there, Bill. Yeah, no worries.
1: Again, one part of practicing to attain enlightenment is to eliminate shyness. If you're not judging other people, then you wouldn't be concerned if people are judging you. So by eliminating judgment in your own practice, your own life practice, then you have no concerns about whether people are judging you. Just not something that you're attached to. Or if you don't have attachment to a self-image or a self-identity or an ego, You let all that stuff go, you can then learn to not be shy. So let's move on to the next chant. You might be the only one who practices, Max. Or maybe this next chant, it's a little bit easier. There might be some people that have been practicing this one. Here, we've actually got the next chant, which is just one line. So let me do that for you guys. And then we'll give Max and anyone else a chance to practice.
2: Napmoid hussa paco ato, Arahato, somea, some putasa. Napmoid hussa paco ato, Arahato, somea, some So this chant we do
1: three times, and this particular chant is respect just for the Buddha. So it's respect to the perfectly enlightened one, the worthy one, the rightly self-awakened one. And I think it's important to note that Gautama Buddha didn't invent these chants and tell everybody to chant them, right, because he wasn't about worshiping him. That's not what these chants are about. These chants were actually developed after he died. So he didn't develop these chants and then tell everybody to respect him and force everybody to chant these. These came after his death, and people developed them in order to pay respect and gratitude to this person who lived for 80 years dedicated 45 years of his life in order to teach and share the teachings with others. And then when he died, people had such utter respect and gratitude for him that these things were created in order to show respect and gratitude for him. One of the nice things about chanting is doing this before meditation, you actually kind of slow the mind down a bit. That's what I was talking about, setting up mindfulness in front of you Or becoming aware of the mind and easing the mind into meditation one of the things that can happen when you first get started with your meditation practice is you might get excited to actually meditate and excitement and elation is one aspect of a discontent mind and we want to bring that down to the middle so One of the things that's nice about chanting is not only do you get awareness of the mind and awareness of the breath and improve your concentration and improve your memory, but you get this skill or this ability to kind of slow the mind down a bit prior to going into meditation. So rather than just kind of plopping or jumping into meditation, you kind of ease the mind into meditation with the chant. So how about it, Max, you want to give this one a try?
3: Give this one a try, unless there's anyone else that wants to jump in. But I'm more than happy to. Ah, we do have a hand up. Perfect. We have two hands up. Okay. Well, uh, Ian, you were first, so I suggest we go over to Ian. Yeah. And try. Here
4: we go. Natmo bhagavato harato natmo
1: Very good, Anne. Very good. So a suggestion that I have for you is you got all the pronunciation exactly correct, but try to even out your breath and even out the tone a bit so that you practice kind of controlling the breath. controlling the tone because one of the things that we do in the practice of meditation is we learn how to control the mind right so by training the mind we actually control it we learn to control it so one of the things that I noticed with your chanting is sometimes it kind of evens out and it goes a little bit slower but then it kind of picks up a little bit and it doesn't quite sound like the breath is a hundred percent evened out so just work on that work on evening out the tone and evening out the breath so that you can get a nice steady consistent tone and consistent breath all the way through your chanting so let me do it for you one time and then i'll have you do it again as a practice
2: Can you go ahead and try again, In?
4: Yeah, okay. Better,
1: good. And try to bring some confidence through it too, right? Have some real
2: confidence. <laughs>
1: Right, have confidence. We need that in daily life. So if you put that into your chanting, then you can be confident with your chant. So you want to try it again? good your tone and your breath is evening out that's already improvement already just those two times so work on evening out your tone evening out your breath and bringing some confidence into your chanting very good and thank you for volunteering and practicing keep going and keep practicing every three weeks we're going to touch on this topic and it'll be a chance for you to improve and get some coaching and guidance all right who's next
3: good one Ian. so we also have james with his hand up so would you like to give this chart a try james
6: okay (laughs) Arahato Samasambu Namo the Sah Arahato Samasambu Namo the Sah Arahato Samasambu
1: very nice james very good tone same thing as in try to even that out a bit because just like with the mind where we're trying to bring the mind to the middle and kind of be very even and steady try to even that out a little bit so that you can just
2: just, just nice and in the middle so try that again but try to kind of
1: even it out rather than holding one particular syllable for too long and then dropping into another one. Just try to control the mind and control the breath nice and even all the way through. Yeah, keep going. That's good.
6: Arahato sama sambu
1: tessa, Namo tessa, Hakoato, Arahato sambu tessa. Excellent, James. Already improved. So, yeah, just keep working on that. That sounds better. You're getting nice and controlled evenness, because one of the qualities of the mind that we're looking for to cultivate in this practice is what's called equanimity. We're going to talk about this on Sunday. Equanimity is evenness of temper, evenness of mind, right? And also treating others fairly and equally. So what you're looking for is creating that equanimity, that evenness of mind, that evenness of temper. So... When you develop that as part of your chanting practice, it can ease into meditation, and then you bring it into your daily life as well. So work on that evenness, that equanimity. Very good. Excellent.
3: Okay. I guess we've got Bill's hand up as well, so I'd like to unmute
7: you, you, Bill. Namo Tasa Sama Namo tasa pakawato, arahato sama sambut Namo tassa pakawato, arahato
1: sama sambut very nice bill that's very good i can't really think of too many things to coach you on there other than just continuing to bring more and more confidence to it that sounds really good and there's a little bit more of a equanimity evenness that you could bring to it but not much you're you're almost got it fairly equal or even i think you benefited probably from the other two people that went. you're probably listening to that coaching so that was good but yeah just continuing to bring that to an even tone and bring some more confidence to it. Very nice, Bill. Any others? How about you, Max?
4: I'll give this one a go. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasamputasa Namo tasa bhagavato
1: good i hear some good evenness there it seems like you might be a little bit hesitant though i don't know if that's because you're online and a lot of people are listening but it seems like you might be holding back a little bit kind of like holding it back. Just let it rip. Just let it go. One of the places that you can practice this is in the shower, right? Or in any kind of acoustic area, right? Like I used to practice in the shower all the time because you get really nice acoustics and it kind of fills in the sound a bit. And you'll actually get more of a feeling of what it's like to actually chant this with a lot of people. So the acoustics will kind of fill in the voids and the holes a little bit, just like singing, where people go into the bathroom to learn how to sing or like in a subway or any other acoustic environment that has kind of a, a filling up of the sound and rounds out the sound. So if you guys practice in a bathroom or a shower or something like this, I think it will really help you to hear the roundingness and the filling in of the voids when you're chanting. And then you can get some more confidence going in there too, because there's nothing like building confidence of chanting while you're naked in a shower. Right? If you can do it there, you can do it here or in a temple with a lot of couple hundred people, right? So in terms of getting over your shyness, go ahead and chant in the shower. Right? Like sometimes we Think of these practices as being so holy and so serious. And, you know, we kind of get our minds wrapped around this stuff and we get our breath. Oh, so serious. at Gautama Buddha, 2,500 years ago, the perfectly enlightened one. Yes, we need to pay respect and gratitude to Gautama Buddha, but we can have fun with it, too. So if you feel so inclined the next time you take a shower, let it rip. Build your confidence. It's fun. It makes it motivating and encouraging chant in the shower okay anybody else would like to volunteer on this one get some coaching before we move to the next one okay uma excellent let's hear your chanting
4: Namotasa, bakavato, arahato, sama
7: <laughs>
1: nice, Uma. Women have very beautiful voices when they're chanting. There's actually groups in Thailand that will get together at different times and they will fill up the temple with lots of different people, especially women who will practice their chanting for many, many days at a time and live at the temple. So really beautiful Uma, but one thing I would suggest for you is it sounds like you kind of start and stop a little bit, and this might just be because you need to memorize the chant a little bit better, but getting a little bit more of a flow and kind of a consistent nature to it. So instead of starting and stopping, like, instead of like this,
2: kind of make it more even. Just let it flow,
1: just like with the mind, how we're trying to just let everything go. We're not trying to hold on to anything. With your chanting, you want to just kind of let it go. Just let the air come out of your mouth, out of your lungs. Just let it flow. Let everything go. So you want to try that again, Uma? Just kind of let it go.
4: Paka vato arahato sammasamputasam Namo Pesa Paka vato arahato sammasamputasam Namo Pesa Paka arahato sammasamputasam
1: Yeah, better. There wasn't as much starting and stopping. Just a little bit at the beginning, but otherwise nice flow just let it go. Just let it go. The same feedback for you too, Max, when it seems like you're kind of holding on a little bit, just let it go. Just let it go. Just like we want to let all the attachments go from the mind. We don't want to hold on to anything too tightly. Same thing with your chanting. Just let it go. Okay. Excellent. Very good. That's very wonderful, guys. right so now for a little bit more of a challenging one this is the third one that I usually teach the ETP so so let me do this one for you guys and then if any of you guys have been practicing this you can
2: get some coaching ETP so Vicharanang sammuno Sakato kavitu Anu tero purisa tama sati satatawa manu sanang. So when you chant this as a group,
1: there's usually these certain pauses that everybody kind of knows. So here in Thailand, when we chant all of these chants, there's kind of like well-known pauses. And when I chant, I chant in that
2: way. So with this particular chant, it's iti pīsō so ma ka wa ara hang samma sakhato roka Anu satatava manu Sometimes people will ti,
1: will drag it out. Sometimes you hear people just ti and just done. I usually like to kind of drag it out a little bit. Because that's what leads me into meditation I'm gonna dee, and then from there I'm gonna go right in to meditation right boom okay so how about it who would like to try this one Bill's raising his hand is Bill raising his hand I see visually yeah Bill wants to go all right go for okay. it Bill all right I love just get rid of the shyness. Just get rid of it. Even if you've only practiced it one time, so what? Just do it. Cut it off. Yeah, cut it off. Get rid of that shyness.
7: Up the shyness. Yeah. Okay, I will try. Atiso <laughs> Arahan we charanam Sampuno Sacato Gawitu. I know I blew that. No, uh, keep
1: going. That
7: like a, keep going. Uh,
1: Good. It looks like you're getting the syllables down. You're trying to get comfortable with the pronunciation. Yeah.
7: It's the that I'm forgetting.
1: Yeah. The more you chant this with a group of people, You know, if you drop out on a syllable here or there, it's okay because you'll hear it, other people doing it. So the more people around you that are doing it, the better. That's why I usually kind of start these sessions off with all of us chanting together, because then the more you hear it, the more you'll kind of fill in and kind of memorizational work. You'll hear the pauses. You'll hear the extra pronunciation that you might not be doing right now, but you're working on it. That's the important thing everybody's practice we're all working on it we're all we're all practicing right so that's good good try there bill that that's improvement that's showing that you're working at it who's next
3: i'm happy to give it a go david
1: okay go for it
3: okay
4: (laughs) etp so pakawa Arahang sama sampo to we charana sampo no sakato we
1: Very nice, Max. This one sounds like you're not holding your breath as much. I guess you maybe implemented the advice on the previous one. So it sounded like a more flowing, you weren't kind of so apprehensive, which was really good. Very nice. Very nice. Why don't we do this, all three of them, again, together as a group? We'll go through all three of them together as a group. And then I have something else after that. Okay? So let's start at the beginning with the Arahang Sama Samputasa. We'll just chant them as a group together. Okay? That way you can kind of chant along. Okay. So let's start with the Arahang Sama Samputasa. And then we're going to go right on through all of them.
2: Ara hung some hot home hakawa
5: hot
2: home hakawa and hung a to hakawa among Namasa me Soba tepano paca watto Sawaka sung sung hung Namame. And we go right into the next one. Napmoid hassa bako Arahato somea samputasa. Napmoid hassa bako ato. Arahato somea samputasa. Nap moid hasab hako ato, ara Piti piso hako ARAHANG hang samasam vi ta ca ra saṃ to vi tu anu te ro pu sa tā sa tā tā then that's
1: where you slip into meditation and then after your meditation then you can go right back into the chanting as a way to kind of finish it off if you like you don't have to but you might find some really good benefit if you do it this way okay so to work on each individual chant individually let's do the triple gem three times. So we're going to go all the way through all three phrases once, and then we're going to go through all three phrases again, and then we're going to go through all three phrases again as a way to practice your chanting, okay? Here we go. From the top,
2: just the arahang sama, just the triple gem. ARAHANG SAMA SAMHOTO AH MAHAKAVA HOTANG MAHAKAVANANG API VATTE AMI. SAVAKHATO AH TAMMO sāmaṁ nāma-sāmiṁ sūpa-tipa-no bhāka-vatto sāvāka-sāṅkho Keep going. Ārākhaṁ sammāsaṁ motō māgavā bhūtāṁ māgavānāṁ apivātī amī savākhaṁ to māgavataṁ māgavātāṁ Nama Namami, Sopadepano Bhagavato Savaka Sangho, Sangham Namami. Again. Arahang samma sammho toam hakawa. Pho tang hakawa nang apiwa teamin. Sawakha LAMANG NAMASAMI SUPA Bhagavato Savaka BHAKA VATTO SA NAMAMI All right. Let's
1: go to the next one and do exactly the same thing, the natmothasa. Now, this one is three times, but then let's do that three times. So, essentially, nine times. Okay? So, here we go. Starting from the top, we'll do it essentially nine times.
2: Natmothasa Ārāhāto Hato, some ma, Nap moid, her sa, pako ato. Ara Nap Sam Potasa Napmod Hassa Pacoato Ada Hato Samasam Potasa Napmod Hassa Nap more her sap hako Arahato somea Arahato Napmoid Ara Sama Samputasa Napmo tassa pako Arahato sama samputasa. Okay, that's the Napmo tassa three times.
1: Okay, let's go to the next one, Max. Iti piso. All right, this one's a little bit more challenging. But let's do the same thing. Let's go through this one three times. Okay.
2: All right. Here we go. From the top. Iti piso ara hang samasamoto. Vicha charanang sakato roka vitu anu tero purisa dama satatawa manusanang. Bhutto bhagavati Itibiso amhakavā ārākhaṁ Saka to Rokavitu, Anu tero purisa damasati sata manusan puto pacaati. Iti piso makava ara hang sama samoto. We cha charang samuno sakato this one tends to
1: be a bit more challenging, right? A lot more syllables, a lot of variation of syllables. Oftentimes when people are first learning, they'll start with the Natmotasa first. Learn that one for a little bit. Use that to lead you into meditation and come out. Then add the sama Samputasa. Do that one with Natmothasa. Lead into meditation and come out many times. And then start approaching this one and start working on this one. Some people might just wanna learn all of them together. So you can just learn all of them together. Every time before meditation, just have, a, have like a little laminated guide that is your chance. Prior to meditation, you can actually uh, chant this looking at the paper. And then each time you do it, you learn it better and better and better and better. You will develop this skill and develop this ability to chant. So you'll be working on awareness of breath, awareness of the mind, You'll be working on memorization and concentration, working on evenness in your chants, working on just letting it go, not trying to control the breath and kind of hold it in, but just kind of let it go. Okay, all of these things that you're doing in chanting translate over to your meditation and translate over into your daily practice. All things that you need to be doing for your daily practice. Awareness of breath, awareness of mind, focus, concentration, memorization, evenness, calmness, steadiness, stillness, and just letting it go. Getting over your shyness, right? Not comparing yourself to one person or another, not judging other people. These are all very good things to be doing in your chanting practice that translates over into meditation in your daily practice. Any questions on anything that I just shared?
3: Yes, we have a question from Alan on Facebook. And Alan asks, why is there a transfer of merit chant? Uh, in brackets, Buddha, Sina Duttana, Patam. Why is there a transfer of merit chant when Buddha said that merit cannot be transferred? This particular kata is often chanted by Thai and other monks. I also see monks performing rites and chanting this kata with deceased family, thanks.
1: Yeah, so the short answer to your question is impermanence, okay? Everything's constantly changing. There's not this fixed state, right? So what the Buddha actually taught 2,500 years ago and what people are practicing today are oftentimes very different. So the Buddha taught that gamma and merit is basically you, right? You are the owner, the heir, the inheritor of your karma. Anything you do, good or bad, it only affects you. You can't actually transfer merit to another person. It's just not possible. That's what the Buddha taught. But 2,500 years later, because of impermanence, people have come up with all these various ways To say that you are transferring the merit you know in Thai culture they have these little urns that they pour water out as they're transferring the merit there's different chants or different things that people will use but people who practice the Buddhist teachings very closely they understand that it's not possible because with merit one of the big things with merit is you're actually practicing generosity by offering donations or offering resources or offering food or supplies to continue the teachings of the Buddha through making these offerings to teachers and temples and things like this, this is merit, but it's a practice of generosity. And what you're doing with the practice of generosity is you're training your mind to let go, to essentially eliminate craving or greed, this holding on, this attachment, the way the mind likes to hold on to things. So the practice of generosity is the antidote to this poison of craving or greed. So when you're actually making an offering and producing merit, making an offering to me or to a temple or to a monk, you are practicing generosity and sharing your resources and you're actually helping to eliminate craving in the mind. That benefit, you can't transfer it to another person. It's impossible because the benefit is training your mind. It's your karma. So it's a big misunderstanding in some parts of the Buddhist world that somehow you can offer things to monks and to temples and to bikinis and to teachers like me, and then when you're done, they perform some little ceremony that somehow miraculously translates that benefit to those people who have died or to other people. This is not possible. This isn't what the Buddha taught, but it's something that's practiced because of impermanence. People have changed the teachings. But hopefully you can understand that the whole benefit of merit is, yes, one, to continue the teachings and support the people that are offering the teachings, but most importantly, what it's doing for you is through practicing generosity, it's training your mind to let go of craving And you can't transfer that to somebody else. It's not humanly possible. So it's all impermanence. And one of the things that I do as part of my teaching and all the resources that I share is I teach you what the Buddha taught. Because this is what's going to improve the quality of your mind. Practicing the transferring of merit to other people, this is wrong view, right? Having a ceremony to transfer merit to another person. One of the fetters that the Buddha taught that needs to be eliminated from the mind is wrong observances and wrong practices, essentially. And in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment, you have to eliminate three of the fetters, personal existence view, doubt about the teachings, and wrong observances and wrong behaviors. These are the three lower fetters that need to be eliminated just to get to the very first stage of enlightenment. So if you're involved in ceremonies, if people are teaching you ceremonies, if people are teaching you to transfer things from one person to another, if people are telling you that you have to do this chant in order to realize some special power or special benefit, this is a wrong observance and wrong behavior. And if people think that that's what it requires in order to produce Nibbana, they will actually never get to enlightenment because they can't even get to the first stage of enlightenment because they're still practicing wrong observances and wrong behaviors. That's the third fetter. So in those environments, we don't judge people. We don't look down on them. We don't think that they're bad people because they're just doing what they've been taught you know, throughout their life, throughout the way that these teachings have been handed down and all the impermanence, they're practicing all of that impermanent stuff. But what I've done is gone back to the original teachings of the Buddha and only practice that because that's what's going to improve the condition of the mind. And the first step of the Eightfold Path is right view. Right view is essentially accepting responsibility for everything we do. The natural law of kama, We are the owners, the heirs, the inheritors of our kama. So it's not possible to actually transfer merit to another person. But it's a great question, Alan. I'm glad you asked it because it's such a big misunderstanding. I actually put it in the back of the book under the chapter Misunderstandings of Gautama Buddha's Teachings. Once you get to the back of the book, you'll see, I think it's chapter 25, is devoted to misunderstandings of Gautama Buddha's teachings and that's one of the misunderstandings that you'll see kind of prevalent throughout the Buddhist community
3: I think uh, speaking of impermanence David you rightly said earlier that this set of chants has been um, chanted in many different ways in different countries they do it in different ways but of course uh, you have the benefit of living in Thailand and you've learned this by ear is there a good reason to think that this is close to how it was chanted in the times of the, uh, the Buddha um,
1: as far as I know, these chants weren't chanted during the lifetime of the Buddha. I have a book that goes through some chants that were chanted during his lifetime, but I'm not sure that these were actually chanted during his lifetime. I think that some of these may have been created afterwards and have been handed down. But remember, the way that you implement your chanting practice to me, should be based on the goals of the practice. So that's why, for me, I use this as a way of awareness of breath, awareness of mind, and ease the mind into meditation, setting up mindfulness in front of me, training the mind to have evenness, and just letting go. These are all really good qualities to have as part of your practice. But I'm not sure that these were actually practiced during the Lifetime of the Buddha but I still feel confident about chanting these because I know the benefit that it gave to me in my mind, improving the concentration and the memory and all the other things that I talked about. So that's why I teach it, because I know that it's beneficial because it benefited me in my practice.
3: I remember reading recently that it's deliberately done in this kind of uh, two-tone way. So when you chant, most of the tones are just two different tones and apparently that's easier on the voice so you can chant for longer that's just a little um, fact that i read recently
1: that makes sense that makes a lot of sense you can actually if you're really interested in chanting you can actually get out on like youtube or places like that and as i mentioned every year there's kind of a certain time in thailand where groups will gather at different temples and they will stay there for two three four five days ten days and practice chanting together and harmonizing together and they will record it and then they'll share it over YouTube and podcasts and things like this. And it's really, really beautiful. When I first started getting into chanting, you know, they didn't even have YouTube and they didn't even have podcasts back then. So I used to listen to these on CDs and I was in America at the time. So people who would travel between America and Thailand, you know, they would be like, Here, I brought these from Thailand for you. And it's like, whoa. And I would have some CDs and I would listen to it in the car while I was driving. And oh, it was so beautiful the, the sound that was recorded during these events. And now I've seen a lot of that's available on YouTube and uh, podcasts. They've made it more readily available throughout the world.
3: Nice. Well, thanks for staying, David. No more questions on Facebook or in the Zoom class.
1: Okay. I had a feeling that we would be finished right around, you know, an hour, hour and a half with our chanting because this is kind of a more consolidated practice. I thought I would ask a question of you guys. I'm noticing that as I'm kind of looking around on Facebook and observing some of the news feed posts and stuff, I'm noticing that a lot of people are dealing with loneliness and boredom, of course, because of the the quarantine and the coronavirus. And I was wondering if you guys had any questions around loneliness or boredom or how to perhaps use this to your advantage and your benefit this time that you've got in your house. I thought it might be an interesting topic to discuss if you guys have certain questions or if you wanted to kind of talk about that a bit.
3: Whilst people are, are thinking if they have any questions, David, I might just throw one in there. So I, I suppose with loneliness, one way of applying mindfulness to it, uh, like in any other situation, would be to really try and feel the loneliness. What is it I'm actually feeling? What is the actual sensation associated with it? Mm -hmm. Is, Is it something in the body? And really putting it under a microscope, looking at its constituent parts and yeah, really, really getting to know it. And is that something you would recommend?
1: Yeah, this connects to what we were talking about on Sunday, right? Our topic on Sunday and all this week in the group learning program is chapter twelve, identifying attachments, right? So anytime the mind is discontent, we are causing it ourselves. So if you're experiencing loneliness or boredom, there's certain cravings there, certain attachments, certain desires that's causing this discontentness. Because boredom loneliness sadness anger frustration all of these are different variations of a discontent mind and it's all caused from the same exact thing it's caused by craving attachment desire oftentimes when you're studying someone might say well anger is caused from this or boredom's caused from this or fears are caused from this all of this comes back to the same central problem that the Buddha discovered as the primary problem which is craving, desire, attachment, grasping, holding this mental longing with a strong eagerness. So you have to look in the mind if you're experiencing loneliness or boredom or whatever it is, you have to look in the mind and see what is the mind holding on to that's causing this loneliness or causing this boredom. Is it craving to be with my coworkers? And I was in a habit of going to work every day, seeing the same co-workers, and now my mind is craving that, meaning I have this mental longing and the strong eagerness for my coworkers. Is it uh I can't see my friends or my family? I'm quarantined in the house and I'm not seeing the same people. Am I attached to those people? Am I craving, longing, having a strong eagerness for that? Is it going to restaurants and eating out in a public space and a certain food that you're craving? Or is it just being free to walk around without a mask? And, you know, what is it that's actually craving? What's the longing? What's the strong eagerness? And there's probably two, three, four, five of them that are in there, right? Because early in practice and even midway through practice, it's never just one thing. Especially if you're feeling deep loneliness, or deep boredom, or deep sadness, there's going to be multiple things in there that the mind is is craving and holding on to. If you have a certain position at work, and you feel kind of needed in that position, and when you go to work, it makes you feel good because you feel needed, and you're able to help people, and service people, and you have a certain role to fulfill and now the mind is craving that and it doesn't have that anymore because it's not going to the same job and it's not fulfilling that same duty. It could be that. It could be many different things. But anytime the mind's experiencing sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, fear, shame, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, all of these feelings of a discontent mind come back to the same central problem, craving. Desire, attachment, a mental longing with a strong eagerness. And when you figure out more and more what these things are, you can start chipping away at it. Two of the things, of course, that I always talk about is breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity. These two practices help to train the mind to let go. But also, this is a wonderful time to train the mind to be alone. One of the things that you have to keep in mind is that. When the mind feels loneliness, it's because there's a craving, and the mind's going to want to solve that loneliness by fulfilling the craving. So, if it feels lonely because it wants to be around friends, the mind's going to want you to pick up the phone, call your friends, or the mind's going to want to go outside and see the friends. If the mind is lonely or bored because it's craving to go to a restaurant, then the mind's going to motivate you to go to the restaurant it's gonna want you to go to the restaurant. Or if it's missing a certain family member, it's gonna want you to go see that family member. So if you fulfill that craving, then you're essentially perpetuating the problem. The mind essentially has this craving, it has this longing, it has this strong eagerness, it's gonna try to motivate you to fulfill that craving, right? And as soon as you fulfill that craving, then the mind's gonna be okay for that period of time, but it's only temporary. And as soon as that person's gone or as soon as you can't go to the restaurant anymore, the mind's gonna be lonely again. So the mind thinks it's solving the problem by fulfilling the craving. So by going to the restaurant, it thinks like, okay, I've I've fixed the problem. Or by picking up the phone to call your friend, it feels like, okay, I fixed the problem. But in reality, what you've done is you've just perpetuated the problem further. If you want to use this time to really train the mind in a deep, deep way, when you're feeling the craving, when you're feeling the loneliness, when you're feeling the boredom and you get in touch with what that is and you realize, oh, I'm craving to call my friend or I'm craving whatever. Don't do it. Don't do it train the mind to let it go if you have that sensation and you want to pick up the phone and call your friend because your mind is craving to talk to them so badly and that's what you've identified as causing the loneliness don't do it because as soon as you pick up the phone and fulfill the craving you're just kind of giving in to that craving and you're just going to perpetuate it further just like we talked on sunday where some people are trying to eliminate tobacco or eliminate caffeine, and you put longer and longer periods of time between eliminating caffeine or tobacco or some of these other cravings that you have, do the same thing with things like boyfriends, girlfriends, other cravings that you have, wanting to go to a restaurant. If your mind's craving going to a restaurant, and even though they open your community back up and you can go to a restaurant, choose not to go and give yourself some space and train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy without anything, that you don't need any of this stuff to create a content mind, to create inner fulfillment, because the mind wants all this stuff. And if you don't give the mind all this stuff, it's gonna feel lonely, it's gonna feel sad, it's gonna feel bored. And the mind just says come on give it to me give it to me order something on amazon just give me a new phone give me a new toy give me some new clothes just give me something like i i want to get rid of this loneliness of this boredom just give me something and the mind has just got this craving but if you give into it you're just perpetuating it now maybe three four five ten days okay now you need to do something right and that's fine but continue to put more and more space between your activities and your cravings. Because if you keep giving into the cravings, then you're never gonna liberate the mind. You're never gonna be free of this craving. That's essentially what liberating the mind is, is being free of all this craving. Just being peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy with nothing. If you call the friend, you're peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy if you don't call them, you're okay with that too. So anytime you have a discontent mind, whatever that feeling is, sadness, frustration, anger, irritation, annoyance, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, guilt, shame, any of these discontent feelings, they're all coming from exactly the same thing. Craving, desire, attachment, A mental longing with a strong eagerness. And you need to eliminate these or else you're going to essentially be a slave to the cravings all the time. So work on those. And in order to work on them, you have to identify them.
3: With most people being at home as well and connecting online as as we are, there is the opportunity, but also the danger of using social media for all of our interactions. And that's very much a double-edged sword. I know in my own family and our extended family, we've started having these Zoom calls every week. And many of the family we wouldn't normally see more than maybe three times a year, but now there's this option of having them three times a week. And um, I love that, that's great. That's a great frequency, at least for my taste. But with social media being there all the time, you can access it all the time. And so this feeling of loneliness can get compounded because there's never a time when other friends of yours might not be talking to each other for example there's always something going on somewhere in social media and there's this is temptation to feel like you always have to be online and before you know it you're just reacting to the next you know red notification that appears on whatever platform so i was yeah. wondering if you have any advice on how people should navigate the use of social media in this situation and generally
1: yes so what a craving or desire or an attachment is going to feel like aside from the discontentness right the loneliness the boredom sadness anger aside from that what a attachment or craving or desire is going to feel like is you're going to feel this inner pulling you're going to feel the mind pulling in a certain direction right so with social media with facebook and all these different things that we have, if your mind is attached, if your mind is craving, if you have this desire, you're going to feel a pulling in that direction. You're going to feel the mind pulling in that direction. And when you get there and you see the little red notifications, there's going to be happiness. Oh, wow, I got 20 today. Or wow, I've got 15 today, right? And then you feel so happy that you've got some and then you get to go through them all. And then when you're done, there might be a little bit of sadness that sets in. Or if you come to your phone and you don't have any little red notifications, oh, you might feel a little bit of sadness, right? Because the mind is pulling in this direction and it wants those little red notifications. It wants to feel important. It wants to feel like somebody likes your stuff. And you might even be keeping track about how many you have each time you come to your social media, oh, today I got 10, oh, today I've got 40, oh, wow, wow, or oh, today I got five. Oh, I don't feel so good, right? Because the mind is attached to this device, to this social media, and it's using this as a condition for its happiness. But because that condition is impermanent, That's why your happiness and boredom is going up and down because the mind is craving and attached to this condition of the social media and the little notification. So what I suggest you do is you feel your mind pulling towards a direction of wanting to see your social media. Just tell yourself, you know what, I'm going to give it three or four hours or I'm going to give it six hours or you know what, I'm not going to check it until tomorrow Whatever happens, happens. I don't need to be up to date every single second with the social media, right? So when you feel your mind pulling in a certain direction, that's the mental longing. That's the strong eagerness. That's the craving, the desire, the attachment. If you get happiness, when you see a certain thing, that's, that's an attachment. That's a condition. The mind gets so joyful, so happy, so elated, so excited on a certain condition. Or conversely, it might get sad or disgruntled or annoyed if somebody hasn't replied back to you. This is part of the craving, and that's why it's creating a discontent mind. So the only way to eliminate that is to eliminate the condition. So you're still going to have social media in your life, most likely, but put more and more space between the times that you use it and if you feel your mind pulling towards it then that's an indication that you need to put it up for several hours and give your mind time to slowly reduce that attachment. There was a period of time where I was off social media I want to say two or three years and that's what I did in order to kind of get away from it and not be dependent on it and then when I went back to it I kind of slowly went back to it and slowly kind of added more and more where now if I have it great if I don't have it that's fine now I use it as a tool to teach and reach people and that's how you need to view it is what's the real goal of this social media what am I really using it for don't use it for happiness for excitement for elation because if you use it for happiness that means it's also going to create sadness because those conditions that are creating happiness aren't always going to be there. So sometimes you're going to have sadness. And then also sometimes there's going to be anger and frustration. So when you feel your mind pulling towards social media, you got to put some more and more space between it. The second thing I'll say about social media is this practice of right intention and right speech. It translates over to social media because during the Buddhist time, you know, of course, this didn't exist. All speech was speech. But nowadays, we have certain intentions and we write that out in a text message. So, those five factors of well spoken speech need to be practiced in your social media posting in your comments, in your text messages, in your private messages, you still need to be practicing right intention and right speech as part of your interactions on social media. So right intention is the intention of harmlessness, non-ill will, right? Harmlessness, non-ill will, that you don't wanna harm, right? You, you have to have that as part of that second step of the Eightfold Path. And then right speech, the third step, is practicing those five factors of well-spoken speech. What you say needs to be spoken at the right time. What you say needs to be true. It needs to be spoken gently. It needs to be beneficial. It needs to be spoken with a mind of loving kindness and blamelessly. Okay? If you speak without these five factors of well-spoken speech, it's going to cause harm and therefore harm's going to come to you. So these teachings of the five factors of well-spoken speech also get described and kind of detailed as no gossip, no slander, purposeful talk, no idle chatter, right? So if you can practice right intention of harmlessness and non-ill will, and you can practice right speech, which is spoken at the right time, what you say is true, spoken gently, beneficially, with a mind of loving kindness without blame, this will be very good for your practice. And of course, you can't just snap your fingers and make all this happen at one time. So if the Buddhist teachings are kind of like the ceiling and you're working up to that, to the enlightened mind and practicing right speech, then as you comment and as you post, just be sure that when you hit send, you've done the very best job to make sure that you're practicing right speech, speaking at the right time, that it's true, that it's gentle, that it's beneficial, that it's a mind of loving kindness, that it's blameless, without gossip, without slander, that it's purposeful speech. Now, of course, you're going to get that wrong sometimes. And that's your chance to practice. And when you notice that you're chats and your comments and your posts are maybe a little bit off, or maybe they're not practicing right speech, and you didn't have right intentions, you're going to notice that they're going to be problematic. Now, if you're practicing these teachings really well, right intention and right speech, you'll get better and better at practicing them. And you won't have to take so much time to look over your text messages and your posts before you hit send. But when you first get practicing it and you're implementing these teachings in practice, you probably have to take your time and really look at your words, make your word choices very wisely and kind of slow it down and just really kind of do it slowly but surely. But as you do that more and more and more and you train the mind to speak in this way, spoken language as well as written language, then it will become more fluid, it will become more free flowing, and you won't have to take your time as much. But initially, to get the mind trained really, really well, you gotta really take your time, step by step, step by step, and practice. And if you get it wrong, then okay, you got it wrong, that was in the past, now let me work at getting it better for the next one. So social media is a big challenge because it's an extension of your practice right? During the Buddhist time, it was just people that were around you. But now there's these thousands and thousands and millions and billions of people online that we interact with. And if you extend your practice of right intention and right speech into the social media world, then you will realize that your ability to communicate and have healthy relationships personally and professionally is just going to expand because you're practicing these teachings even in the social media realm. If you act one way in person and you act another way in social media, then your practice isn't in sync. You know, Sometimes this is the way people are, that maybe on social media they're very friendly, they're very warm, they're very polite, but in person they're very hostile and very aggressive and and rude or unkind. And then conversely, you've got just the opposite. You've got people who in person are very warm, very friendly, very polite and then online they're fairly hostile and fairly arrogant right? or unpolite. But what you want to do in order to reach this enlightened mind state is you want to have your practice be the same no matter where you're at. This permanent mental state of peace, calm, serenity, contentness with joy where you're practicing the Eightfold Path whether you're in person or you're online. This is really important. And you'll see that your relationships will just continue to blossom and you'll have more and more success in life.
3: Thanks for that, David. Yeah, very interesting what you are saying about noticing the pull. How you know there's an attachment because you feel the mind leaning, and that's really the mm-hmm. first thing is noticing what's going on. That something is going on at all. Secondly, maybe they're noticing what is going on, what does this feel like, but then thirdly, having this clear comprehension, what is the attachment here? What has given rise to this? Why am I feeling the need to do this? Because in seeing that, we can let it go much more easily. I think when there's an attachment, there's a kind of storyline that the mind tells itself, not consciously, but it thinks maybe I've got to get 20 notifications, comments or something today, because I got that yesterday. And if I don't get that today, then I'm becoming less popular or something like that. Or I've got to have this many friends or I'm not popular. And the the need to be accepted is very, very deeply conditioned in a lot of people. And of course, it's simply not true that if you don't get that arbitrary number of requests or notifications that you're not popular. Uh, And even if it did, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't say anything about one's value as a person but that's how attachment works it, yes it makes us think or <laughs> well, makes us even subconsciously because the mind isn't aware of all the things there in the chain that's going on it's just going
1: ah yeah happy
3: when i get this Unhappy happy when i don't get this
1: yeah and what you're explaining that's there is the conditions right the condition is okay if i get 20 notifications today then i'll feel good and that's the condition that's the craving that's where the mind becomes dependent attached craving desiring longing the strong eagerness for the 20 notifications and if it gets it then it feels good and it feels happy but that's a temporary happiness it's not permanent and that's when the mind goes into sadness and these kind of things so back to the eightfold path since we've been talking about that a little bit as it relates to social media you've got to apply right effort the sixth step remember right effort is taking the effort to eliminate unwholesome qualities from the mind and cultivate wholesome qualities in the mind. So because you're trying to eradicate this craving, this desire, this attachment, this longing, this strong eagerness from the mind, if you're feeling your mind pulling towards this phone or towards your device that that you do your social media on, you've just sent this little message and your mind is pulling and pulling and pulling and you just can't wait to see The first like or the first response or whatever it is that's an indication that your mind is craving and attached having the strong eagerness if you can put the phone down and walk away from it and you can be away from it for three four five hours or whatever that's good but if you don't have the power and the ability to do that use right effort do whatever you need to do if you need to take your device and go put it out in your car and lock it up and go back into your house and that's what it's going to take for you to eliminate this from for the next three, four, five hours because your mind isn't strong enough. You don't have the control enough to just have the phone sit next to you because two minutes later, you're going to pick it back up and start using it again. If that's where your mind is that you don't have that control, then do whatever is necessary to build that control, whether that's locking your phone up in a locker, whether it's turning it off whether it's handing it to somebody and say here go hide this from me don't give it to me for six hours you know whatever it is you need to create that distance and that space so that when you see that craving and it's craving and it's craving that social media and you don't have the willpower or the control to do it apply right effort Right, right effort is taking the effort to eliminate the unwholesome quality and cultivate that wholesome quality. So whatever you need to do, if you've got a really strong addiction to social media, you might need to take some extreme measures. Don't wait for other people to do this for you. Nobody's going to come up and take your phone from you. And even if they do, you're going to ask for it right back and get it right back. So when you're trying to train the mind to this level of detail, you've gotta see these type of solutions and these creative solutions and do it for yourself because nobody's gonna do it for you. This is what it means about, this is an independent practice. It's an independent practice. You need teachers and you need guides to help you and guide you, but you have to take the effort to actually implement these teachings and find a way to break these attachments and eliminate this mental longing and strong eagerness. And while this is an independent practice that you need to learn and employ the teachings yourself, you also need to recognize the interconnectivity that yes, we are part of this larger humanity, this larger society. So there's kind of like two sides. But an enlightened mind is going to be more creative. It's going to be more looking for the solution, instead of sitting there and being upset about the social media or allowing the mind to be sad or discontent, look for a solution of how to eliminate this from the mind. And the more you work with it, the more you look for creative solutions, you'll be able to find ways to do that. So if you feel your mind pulling, not just for social media, but it might be pulling to a certain person on social media, or it might be pulling for something else. And when you feel that pull, that's the craving, the desire, the attachment, the mental longing with a strong eagerness. And you've got to take right effort to eliminate it because nobody else is going to do it for you. Nobody else can do it for you. You're the only one that can eliminate the mental longing and strong eagerness. So it's going to take action on your part.
3: Yeah, I know. I've recognised in myself certainly more so in the past. I would try really, really hard in the moment to like slay temptation, rather than just taking a more gentle effort to not put myself in a situation where I might be tempted by something. So, for example, uh, if I'm trying to eat healthy food, I only buy healthy food, mm-hmm. and that way, eating healthy food is really easy because mm-hmm. there's, there's none in the house. And this, I think, uh, is Often thought of as, um, I see it as, as an embracement of our humanity, not mm-hmm. a denial of it, you know, because we know that we run off patterns to a large degree. We know we are subject to our conditioning. What we're doing here is we're really removing all that,
5: mm-hmm.
3: but it's a practice that we have to do gradually over time. And that means taking smart decisions further up the chain,
4: mm-hmm. you
3: know, not buying the chocolate in the first place. Rather than, you know, going to the shop, buying it, putting it in a cupboard and then trying really, really hard not to eat it. You know, it's just you're, you're already done like 90 percent of the way there. Yeah.
1: And, and one of the other things that the mind might be attached to is, is just the phone or just the device itself. Right. Like sometimes we get to the point where we feel so much safety and security knowing that we have a phone with us when we go out the door. We you know, and if you drive a block or two down the street, it's like, oh, my God, my phone. I left my phone back at home. I got to go get it. Right? That's an attachment, too. That's a craving. So, what you have to do in order to train the mind, and this is why I said only 10 to 15% of this training is actually in meditation. A lot of people think to get to enlightenment, it's all meditation, 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 meditation. Just meditate your way to enlightenment. It doesn't work that way. If you're noticing that, you feel a certain sense of safety and security with your phone and you're noticing that when you think you've lost your phone, your mind becomes discontent. Or if you leave the house without the phone and the mind becomes discontent, then that shows that you're having craving for the actual phone itself. So what you need to do is purposefully leave the phone at the house several times and leave the house so that you train the mind I can be peaceful calm serene and content with joy without the phone I don't need that in order to have peace calm serenity and contentness of mind with joy so if you're noticing that your mind is hung up on just having the device and there's a certain discontentness associated with not having it then you need to purposefully leave it behind over repeated times in order for you to actively train the mind to be without it. These types of things are highly beneficial for you. And this is how you apply right effort to train the mind to eliminate attachment. We're not eliminating the phone because you need to communicate with people. You're in a modern world. You're going to need to have a phone at different times in your life. It serves a certain purpose. There's a certain benefit to it. Same thing with social media. there's There's a benefit to it. But if your mind is attached to it, and it's craving it, and it longs for it, and it has this strong eagerness, when you don't have it, the mind's going to be discontent. So you've got to take active steps to set up situations where you purposefully don't have it, and just willfully leaving it behind and making that decision, I'm going to leave it behind, and you go out for a walk for an hour, and that feels good okay for you and you get better and better at that and you leave the house for an hour and wow this feels okay I can do this then you do it again for three hours you do that for a while and then you're taking a drive for the whole day you're leaving in the morning and you're coming back at night just take a drive without your phone right and just train the mind to not need it to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And if you're driving down the road and the mind just keeps thinking about the phone over and over and over again, then that's showing you that there's craving, there's desire, there's attachment, there's a strong eagerness with a a mental longing. And the only way to break that is not to keep taking the phone with you. If you keep taking the phone with you, you're not going to eliminate the attachment. You have to make a conscious decision to leave it behind so that you can train the mind to be without it. That's what I was talking about, about not giving into the craving. Don't give into it. When the mind wants something, try to not give it to it. And that's what I always talk about sometimes when I say, look at the mind as this third entity where the mind's like, give me the phone, give me the phone, give me the phone, give me the Facebook, give me the Facebook, give me this, give me that. No, no, you're not getting that. I'm going to train you to do something else, and that can really help you sometimes to train this mind that you've got.
3: Yes, it's noticing when that craving arises and just knowing that the craving itself is impermanent. Just sitting with yes. it for a bit, seeing what seeing what happens. Yep. Okay, what happens if I just wait five minutes? Yeah, is the craving still going to be there? Is it going to be the same as it was five minutes ago?
1: I was talking to somebody today on chat, who was having a bit of a craving from a conversation they had with somebody yesterday. And I could tell that their mind was a little bit discontent. But then they were like, you know what, I'm going to go for a walk. And they just went for a walk. And rather than sit there in their condo or their house or wherever they were, and just mulling over the feelings and the thoughts of this conversation they had with this particular person the other day that their mind is disturbed about, they were just like, you know what, I'm going to go for a walk and i said sounds good wonderful thumbs up that's right effort rather than just sit there and mull over the conversation and, and allow the mind to hold on to it go for a walk and that's why this practice isn't about just sitting in meditation all the time it's 10 to 15% of it and you know we often see these pictures of the buddha always in meditation always in meditation we very rarely see just pictures of him walking down the street and being a normal guy but a Buddha is just a normal person. They're just a normal person. Sure, they meditate, but it's not like they meditate for eight hours a day or, or 20 hours a day, and they're just so super serious all the time. They still are just a normal person. You know, maybe 10 or 15% of what you're going to do in this practice is meditation, but you've got to make conscious choices to apply right effort. And sometimes that's just, let me go for a walk. Let me go to a movie. Let me go do this other thing to allow the mind to let go. And then when the mind lets go and you feel that release, that's when you eliminated the attachment and the mind's so much more calm, so much more peaceful. And that's where you confirm the Four Noble Truths. Essentially, the mind became discontent because it's attached, it's holding on with this strong eagerness, which is the Second Noble Truth. And then when you go take your walk or you go to the movies or whatever you do and you feel that release, that elimination of the attachment, it's like, ah, you can almost feel it come over your body. It's like, ah, whoa, this feels good. That's the third noble truth kicking in. The way to eliminate the discontent mind is to eliminate the attachment. And as soon as you eliminate that mental longing with a strong eagerness, the mind can be calm, cool collected concentrated peaceful calm serene and content with joy and there it confirms for you the buddhist teachings are 100 percent truth
3: yes there's a lot we can learn in that moment of release say we go for a walk we see the mind let go we notice it and then we might realize that that had i just sat at home and carried on ruminating i might still be feeling discontent about that Mm and what would be the point of that I'm not discontent now so why should I be discontent at all Yes So in that in that moment the mind can learn a lot
1: Yes and then when you do that right like say say you were the person who was at home with the mind discontent from this previous conversation and then you choose to go outside and go for a walk and in that walk you've released the attachment then in the next situation where you have that same situation you are less likely to hold on to it. But even if you do notice the mind holding on, then you already know the solution. Just go for a walk and let it go. So then what happens is you chip away more and more and more at the mind where the mind is less likely to hold on because you've implemented this practice and this discipline multiple times that whenever the mind's discontent, you already know what to do. Go for a walk. Go to the movies. Go over here. Do this go lift some weights, go for a jog, go read a book, go do something else. And then the more you train the mind, it's just like in meditation, where you're training the mind to let go, let go, let go, let go. You're also doing the same thing when you go on the walk, you're training the mind to let go. Or when you go lift weights at the gym, you're training the mind to let go. Or you go to the movie, you're training the mind to let go. And that's a very good practice so that then when these incidents happen to begin with, the mind is less likely to hold on to begin with. And then that's where the mind becomes more and more liberated because it's been trained so much and repeatedly to just let go, let go, let go. It doesn't hold on.
3: So we have a question on Facebook. Lisa asks, how would one break an addiction to chemicals such as cigarettes or even drugs?
1: Yeah, these are the same way. What I suggest for you to do is, you know, set up A plan for yourself. If you're smoking at a certain frequency, you're going to need to gradually diminish that. Or if you're using illicit drugs, you need to gradually diminish that. The mind's going to need that gradual diminishing. So let's just say I was smoking 20 cigarettes a day. One thing I might do is. Choose to go to 15, right? I have to come up with some plan. So maybe I just get 15 cigarettes. I put them in the pack. That's all I get today. It doesn't matter what happens. I'm putting more and more space between my cigarettes. And I do that for maybe a week or so. And then I go to 10 cigarettes. And then I go to five. And then I go to three. And then I go to two. That's one way to do it, right? Is Spread it out further and further and further. You have to develop a strategy for you. One of my students decided that they wanted to start becoming more vegetarian. For me, I implemented it really quickly. And then every once in a while I had a craving for meat. And then I I would eat meat every once in a while. But this particular student came up with his own solution. He would eat vegetarian at breakfast and lunch and then at dinner he would have meat and he did that for a period of time and then over time he slowly stopped having meat at dinner so maybe every other day he would have meat at dinner and then every third day and every fourth day and that was his solution that's what he came up with because everybody's mind is different what works for me is not necessarily going to work for you But if you understand that the mind doesn't like abrupt changes, so by understanding that the mind craves permanence, the mind wants to hold on and it craves this permanence. It wants to hold on to the cigarettes and the drugs. If you understand that, then what you need to understand is that the mind does not like change. It absolutely doesn't like change. So what you need to do is, slowly, gradually move the mind in the direction to achieve the goal and the objective that you're looking for. So whatever craving it is, whether cigarettes, drugs, if you have many girlfriends and you're trying to bring your sexual life down, if you're trying to reduce your Facebook or your social media, you have to gradually do that over time. And again, it's, it's not that some of these things are necessarily bad, like some people are very anti-Facebook. Well, it's not that Facebook did anything wrong. Facebook's just sitting there. It's our craving. It's our desire. It's our attachment that's causing the problem. Facebook by itself isn't doing anything but just sitting there. It's our mind that is getting wrapped around it. So with cigarettes and addictions and all of these things, you have to find ways to gradually move the mind away from it and set up a nice discipline for yourself. And one of the suggestions that I also usually give is reward yourself. If you've set a goal for three days of no cigarettes and you get to it, buy yourself a chocolate bar, take yourself out to the movies, get yourself that piece of pie or cake that you've been wanting to get and that you'll probably get anyway, but just reward yourself after that three days. And then set your goal to be six days and reward yourself for that. And then if you get to 10 days, reward yourself for that. And if you happen to take a misstep and you have a a step backwards, don't feel guilty. Don't be shameful. Don't fall back to your craving and allow it to encompass you. Just realize, okay, I set up 10 days, but I only got eight. That's still good. I smoked a cigarette. Now let me get right back on this and keep on moving. Because you're going to have those little half a steps back. Uh, Whenever I eliminated certain cravings, I always had situations, even, you know, one of the ones I think about was coffee. I mean, there was times when I went for six, eight weeks, you know, even three months. And I thought like, okay, I'm done with this. And then boom, like I would just have a coffee out of the blue and I didn't feel guilty. I didn't feel shameful. I was just like, all right, well, I did that. So let's move on. And I got three months. So it should be easy to get back to three months again. So sometimes when we take those half a steps back, even if we're rewarding ourselves, we expect, right, part of the longing, part of the strong eagerness and the mental longing is we expect this linear progression. And we expect like, okay, if we have a mishap, everything's wasted and we feel guilty and we feel shameful, but you're not going to have this linear progression. You're going to have this kind of up and down. But as long as you're moving in the right direction, That's the important part, is just keep focused on the goal and keep moving towards the ultimate goal and objective.
3: Yes. The advice you gave about phones and social media seems relevant here as well, the applying right effort about the the triggering factors. Because in the case of cigarettes, and probably even more so drugs, there are certain triggers, like certain places you might go, that people you might associate with. And these are all things that can, uh, once having decided to do those can make the extra decision to light up a cigarette seem like a much smaller move. So sometimes we've got to actually reduce all the associated things with that activity.
1: That's a good point because, like cigarettes, you know, the body's physically addicted to the nicotine, to the tar, to all the other things that are in the cigarettes or even illicit drugs, too. That's part of the craving. But the other part of the craving is the social environment that you're participating in, and there's a craving for that. Because I notice when people smoke cigarettes, you know, especially nowadays where a lot of buildings don't allow smoking inside, there's kind of like a social circle outside where everybody smokes, and there's kind of an enjoyment in going outside and smoking together with other people because there's like a social aspect to it. So your mind might be craving that as well. And if you go out in that social circle, even if you've eliminated the cigarettes, the smell might pull the mind back into it. This is one of the things that got me with coffee a few times is I might have eliminated coffee from drinking that, but walking past the coffee shop and smelling it, it pulled me back in after two weeks of no coffee. It pulled me back in. So I had to start eliminating that craving as well. And then if you go to the same coffee shop regularly and you have friends there and the employees and you're friendly with them, you don't have to eliminate the friends, but you have to eliminate that eagerness, that strong pulling that you have to to go see these people and be participants in their life and maybe find other ways to connect with them if you choose to continue the relationship. So stripping away all this craving, I often describe it like an onion is you're pulling back all the layers. The first layer might just be the cigarettes. Deeper than that might be the social aspect. Deeper than that, there might be something else, you know, deeper and deeper and deeper. So you have to pull back all these layers. And that's why this chapter that we're in now, chapter 12, identifying attachments, analysis of the mind, it's so important. And it's very rarely just one attachment. There's usually multiple Attachments, cravings in there that you have to strip away one by one by one. But the beauty is, is once you're doing this successfully with certain cravings and you're successful with it, you just apply that same thing to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And it gets easier and easier and easier because you're just applying the same discipline, the same creativity to a new craving. So once you figure out how to eliminate two or three or four cravings, And you build up a discipline of how to do that then you'll get better and better at that your meditation and your generosity that's kind of like trying to get ahead of the curve right like if your mind has all this craving or it does the meditation and the generosity is just like a consistent practice that you're doing always 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 to try to get ahead of the curve but then when you see certain little dirty cravings in there you're like oh i want to get rid of this That's where you have to get real active with it and implement some of these more active approaches to eliminating it. And when you do, then you can apply that over and over and over to multiple cravings. But just keep your meditation and your generosity continuing as a consistent, ongoing practice.
3: Okay. So that's all our questions for
1: now. Okay. So I'll just wish you guys a really wonderful day. And... Suggest to you to continue your breathing mindfulness meditation, continue to practice generosity, everything that you're doing, practice your chanting as a way to lead into your meditations, and continue to learn with all the resources, the book, the videos, the podcast, and ask questions either in these talks on Wednesday at 9 o'clock Thai time and Sunday at 9 o'clock Thai time, or... Post your question into the Facebook group, and I will share the answer with you. Keep learning. Keep practicing. Never give up. You're making progress, even if it doesn't feel like it. Every day, you're making progress. Every moment, you're making progress. It's really easy to kind of get disgruntled and sad and discontent when you're in the process of stripping the stuff away. It's very easy to get frustrated. It's very easy to feel like you're never going to make any improvement but you're probably making improvements that you don't realize. So don't ever give up. Stay focused on the goal. Keep practicing your meditations. Keep learning the teachings and applying them every day. So until next time, I wish you guys a really great, wonderful day. Sawadee
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support buddha.